Welcome to Michigan Opera Theater's Opera Here podcast. My name is Austin Stewart with the Michigan Opera Theater. This Opera Here podcast is here to give you the inside scoop of the opera production scene on stage at Michigan Opera Theater, to dive into some of the stories, get to know the characters, and learn a little bit about what happens behind the scenes with some guest artists that visit us here in the studio. We're thankful to WDET and to Jake Neer for their help in producing the Opera Here podcast along with Michigan Opera Theater. Today we're talking about a new opera, 27, by composer Ricky Ian Gordon and librettist Royce Vavrick, showing in March at the Macomb Center for the Performing Arts. I'm joined in the studio today by Brianna Elise Hunter, resident mezzo-soprano, artist with Michigan Opera Theater, and the star of 27 playing the role of Gertrude Stein. Thanks for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. So we'll just dive into this work, 27, which the title comes from the address that Gertrude Stein shared with her partner Alice B. Toklas in Paris during the 19-teens and 20s. Alice B. Toklas sits in her living room at 27 Rue de Fleurus and conjures the world she shared with Gertrude Stein by knitting the memories of their past back to life. Gertrude enters the salon and invites her guests to peruse her collection, praising the genius of the artists as Alice attends to everyone. Pablo Picasso reveals his own portrait of Gertrude in a ceremony that is met with disdain by Leo Stein and a bit of jealousy by Henri Matisse. Leo announces he is moving to Italy and storms out. Gertrude and Alice toast his departure and sing of the ringing bells of genius that celebrate their love. Gertrude and Alice weather the First World War in Paris. Gertrude continues to write as the cold sets in and food becomes scarce. An American doughboy stationed in Paris becomes a friend and provides them with coal and cigarettes, but fails to return with sought-after eggs. Another boy is added to the tally of the lost generation. After the war, Gertrude's attention shifts from painters to writers, now welcoming the likes of Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and the photographer Man Ray. Ernest and Scotty are desperate for Gertrude's endorsement, so she encourages them to wrestle for her attention. She will announce the winner a genius. When Ernest finds himself defeated, he calls Gertrude's authority nonsense. The writers are expelled from the salon as the next war approaches. Gertrude and Alice survive the Second World War by sacrificing paintings. Picasso's portrait of Gertrude preys on her conscience, asking her to explain how a Jewish-American authoress survived Nazi-occupied France. The guilt eats away at her, and she dies in Alice's arms. Alice, now alone, is surprised by the return of Picasso. Together, they say goodbye to the portrait of Gertrude as it is being shipped off to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Picasso sketches an image of Gertrude for Alice as the bells of genius and love chime once more. It's such a great story. It's a great concept for an opera. Um, You know, so frequently, the, the big works that we're really drawn to as opera lovers, as opera goers, are these fantastic fictional stories of the likes of Tosca or Leonora in Travatore mm. or Violetta. I mean, you name any of the of the great 
soprano roles, and they're these larger-than-life fictional characters. Mm -hmm. But here's a delightful real-life, larger-than-life <laughs> right. character. Yeah. Um, so, Brianna, you've had this fantastic opportunity, I think, to get to know more about Gertrude Stein and get into her world and to think about how you will play that character um, in this opera. So would you just tell us a bit about the process that you've gone through to get to know Gertrude Stein and how you came to know her originally and what else surprising about her you've discovered in this process? Sure. Um, well, this is a lot. <laughs> There's so much information um, that I have swimming in my head about her right now, and it's becoming more and more like a little bit of an obsession. I think before uh, re receiving the news that I was going to do this part, um, I knew I knew very little. I knew she had these experimental works writing of writing and poetry, and she kind of it was kind of oddball, and I don't think I really understood it. <laughs> you know, when I maybe studied it in school briefly, I knew about how she had cultivated you know this salon and and endorsed the work of many modern artists at the time of all different disciplines, which is also very cool, not just painters but also writers and photographers and I knew all this but I was probably most fascinated to know that this woman who she dared to be a hundred percent I guess truthful to herself in spite of what society would would think of her um, a lesbian <laughs> living uh, with her partner she wasn't feminine <laughs> in any way shape or form I think <laughs> Like, she really wasn't. They were, Alice and the, Gertrude were drawn to each other because of their mutual love of corduroy. Yeah, like, she wore, <laughs> yeah, she, <laughs> she wore corduroy and just, I don't know, it, it cultivated certain ideas in my head of who this person would be. Mm -hmm. So I think what I was most shocked to learn um, was definitely how conservative she actually was and also how uh, she's not a hero, she's not a heroine, necessarily. I think when I came to this part, I had this idea that, like, she was going to be this person that I would, like, revere. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> this sounds terrible to speak so ill of the dead. But honestly, <laughs> like, there's a lot that's awful about her. <laughs> that That's what I was surprised to discover, to be mm. perfectly honest, in my opinion. Like, that she was somebody that. I mean, people just waited on her <laughs> hand and foot. She expected people to do things for her. She's one of those people who she she was raised very wealthy and was had a fixed income for life that allowed her to live the lifestyle she she lived and allowed her to make the art that she made and work like what 30 minutes a day, I think they yeah. say in the Janet Malcolm book, um, while Alice literally does everything else around the house. Um, thought people were you know, who weren't working, were lazy. Like, had the <laughs> gall to say these things. Write about it. And write about it and think herself superior. Mm -hmm. For those 30 minutes a day that she did work. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> who, who? And I don't know where that comes from, whether it's just like, I guess in a way I respect how much she just owned it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. In a way that she just just was unapologetically... That, that rooted in her ideas like there's something admirable about that but yeah I think that was the most surprising thing was just how much I was expecting to love her 
thinking like, here's this progressive woman just living in this salon in Paris and with her lover, you know, with her, her wife, Alice, and um, thinking she was going to be like a champion for artists and for people in a way that she really wasn't. This is the opening scene of the opera, Alice's life after Gertrude is gone. Mm -hmm. uh, she is knitting the world that they lived together back in. Uh, Alice was the domestic character mm -hmm. in their household. She's the one that cooked, cleaned, she knitted, she darned the socks, she made the corduroy skirts probably. You get a sense throughout this opening scene of the great kind of rhythmic vivaciousness mm -hmm. of Ricky and Gordon's writing in this opera. And I feel like there's there are so few still moments. The still moments are beautiful, they're sublime, but always there is this... Um, I don't want to say freneticism in a negative way, but no. it's so active and jovial. And I just feel like she's this just kind of buoyant heaping, or... buoyant person yeah. who just is so effusive with her praise or or, or yeah. her criticism. Or or but, you know, it's always it's always just kind of bubbling out. And I feel like this music does that. It's really um, like constant hunt for... Mm -hmm. Genius. For like, genius. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Her quest for genius and glory. Then Alice enters with this theme that she has throughout the opera, Knit One, Pearl One, Gertrude Stein, mm -hmm. um, which comes over and over in the opera, kind of as a, a bit of a tied together yeah. of both memory and the present. Mm -hmm. There are a few other times where memory and, and going back and telling part of the story kind of in a haze where that happens. And so this uh, Knit One Pearl One theme is important to that. Gertrude literally like walks down the audience through the audience, at least as Does she? indicated in the score. Oh, I, d I didn't notice that. She's that. like talking to audience members. I don't know how we're going to stage it. Who invited but, you? Um, yeah, yeah. But I. How'd you uh, get here? Yeah, she's. it says like walking. <laughs> oh, there you go. I, I kind of look, maybe that's how I envisioned it. <laughs> Maybe that's like totally kooky, but I just inv I imagine her just like appearing in like walking into her own opera, and just Why being not? like, "Oh hey, how when did I invite <laughs> you here? You're in my house. Well, okay, you're here. Welcome. Peruse all of my paintings. Peruse. Alice peruse. is gonna cook you something really great, delicious. Usually with cannabis in it. Usually, so with I understand. <laughs> Yes. That was a key ingredient yeah. in her cooking, yeah, I understand, that makes sense. which would explain a lot of the writing. It does. It <laughs> makes everything make sense now. <laughs> so she, uh, she, yeah, she, she's so um, just kind of jovial and happy to invite everyone. And she, mm -hmm. she wants to show off this wonderful collection uh, that she and Leo have been curating. And so that's your, your opening aria yeah. with Peruse Peruse. And you're yeah. invited to take in her... Her collection. That's right. 
this larger than life character. What is so wonderful about 27, the opera, is the intimacy that you get between Gertrude and Alice. Very much so. Um, and I don't know of another work that does it justice. This opera, I think, is most about their relationship. Absolutely. And I think mining out that relationship is, is a huge part of, I think, achieving <laughs> success with this opera. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, like, that's kind of the, the way in and the way that you're going to, <laughs> I, I will find redemption <laughs> in her, <laughs> I think, is, mm. is through their, their love, their relationship that I think really was genuinely so intimate. So just even just in the duet, just talk about the duet and the way that each line is exchanged. Just like, you're my genius. Mm-hmm. You are. And I find the way that the music actually just like weaves and I guess knits. It's incredibly beautiful. It's it's my favorite part. The duet. Yeah. So the duet begins um, with this reference to ringing, mm-hmm. uh, a bell ringing, which I love how Royce Favrick, the librettist, brings in all of these very nuanced parts of Stein's writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so she begins the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas uh, with Alice saying, whenever she met a genius, she heard a bell ring. Mm-hmm. And she'd only heard a bell ring three times in life, which was when she met Gertrude, Pablo Picasso, and Alfred Whitehead, the right. mathematician. So Alice begins this duet, and it just it has this outpouring of affection. She's not even saying anything about, you know, she's not mm-hmm. describing, she's just saying, your voice... Um, it's a joyful ring, Gertrude, an angel's trumpet, Cupid's bow, mm-hmm. um, the bells, the bells of my Gertrude. just this beautiful um, expression of love that I think is so unique to the telling of their relationship in this opera. And, you know, rarely do we actually hear uh, a duet of this kind of love and intimacy between two women. Just to tell you a little bit um, about the production as well, is that aside from Gertrude and Alice, 
all of the other characters in the opera kind of change parts mm -hmm. throughout. I don't know if I'll get them all exactly correct, but Picasso becomes Hemingway and Matisse mm -hmm. becomes F. Scott Fitzgerald. They're in like t-shirts and mm -hmm. kind of like just pants, very plain. And they move in and out of the paintings yes. to tell the story, which I think... And the paintings come to life. Yeah, that's a cool element. It's just... just it's, it's very Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did not make that connection. Do, do, oh, do, do, do. oh, sorry. We have the copyright for that. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that, that the paintings come to life. Me too. Um, not to go all Oscar Wilde on it, but... It's a... I think it's um, a valid... I didn't actually think about it before you said that, but I think that's definitely a valid connection. Yeah. It's great because I don't think that we know where, like, Gertrude Stein ends and where her art begins. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I connected to very early on in this piece was the concept of, like, what it is to be an artist and the, the life of an artist. And I think her ego, everything was entirely wrapped up in her work in a mm. lot of ways, like, and whether she had value. So yeah. now we can go on to that conversation yeah. about Stein that I you're, just... <laughs> that you're, <laughs> that we all want to have, which is ultimately, how did Gertrude Stein, an American authoress, lesbian, Jew, Jew, living in Paris at the time of the Nazi occupation, how did she make it out of the war with a collection of degenerate art intact? And it's the one of the biggest questions that's, I think, plagued Stein in posterity. She obviously had friends in high places. Um, she was very close friends with Bernard Fay, who was the head of the library, uh, of, the library of the Bibliothèque Nationale mm -hmm. in Paris, who... He went, was gay, too. That's uh, yep, another thing. A gay man who went straight to Pétain and the Vichy, and the Vichy regime. regime and made arrangements for Stein's writings to be sent mm -hmm. to America, where mm -hmm. they would be protected. Stein and Toklas were given passage. They were in, currently they were at kind of their, their cottage home when the war started. Um, they were given passage back into Paris mm -hmm. so that they could go and they could remove the paintings from the walls. Mm -hmm. Some of them went with them back to the country. Others were just laid on the floor. Right. Uh, and something that works into the opera, um, at one point they talk about pages and pages of hate. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a reference to the fact that one way that Stein made money and got sustenance for them during the war was by translating Pétain's speeches into English. Yep. So going to your point about the surprises yeah. of, of studying Gertrude Stein, and it's not this kind of placid, absurd language at the top. There's something very deep to it. So how have you explored that? It's just so incredibly shocking to me. I don't know if I'll ever be over it, <laughs> that she could do this. It's just so hard <laughs> for me to, to grapple with. Um, how could you, uh, as a lesbian, as a Jew, like knowing that these are people who are being persecuted right outside your door, mm -hmm. not far away. You know, she's not, she's not even in America. She's in France. And it's... And they were told a few different times, like, if you don't leave today... Right. You, you will be going to a concentration camp. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were given forewarning in several instances, yeah. at least. I, 
yeah, that's just something I'm going to have to continue to grapple with. And it's not like I don't, um, I've never played like a bad character before. Like, sure. And it's fun a lot of the time to play somebody who's like devious. But this is like an insidious thing because I don't think she's a bad person. But it's she's just very much the antithesis of my own personal thoughts and values, I guess, in this situation. I just can't imagine standing idly by and befriending, <laughs> remaining friends with somebody who is instrumental in the the persecution of... Oh, and friend with collaborators, I mean, and, and yeah. supporter of collaborators. So there's this chorus in the opera, actually, where the pictures, being the, the male voices... Mm-hmm kind of come to life and they're accusing Gertrude and they're ki- they're also like putting her on trial mm-hmm. in a way her art is is the art that she owns is kind of looking back at her and saying you're complacent you were there in betrayal narcissism mm-hmm. as you said um, narcissism took over blindness collaboration self-hatred mm-hmm. and then Alice has this incredible line that I think sums up a lot of her protection of Gertrude. And she says, um, she is not guilty, she is Gertrude Stein. As if unequivocally that that just kind of absolves her. Yeah. And I think that it, they were in their late 50s by the Second World War, right? Yeah. I believe so. If Yeah, it, and Stein might have even passed 60 by the time the war was over. Mm-hmm. They had been involved in the First World War. They had been ambulance drivers. Right. And they got the car <laughs> from overseas. Yeah. You know, they had taken in doughboys during the First World War. That's how they came to know Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know, there's kind of like, <laughs> they were content on retirement by the time. And it was, <laughs> it was inconvenient. Right. The war was inconvenient, that is. And that's one of the points that's been made, is that there was kind of this war going on outside, and yet the hospitality of their home, mm-hmm. the, the art making of their home, supported as nefarious means as were necessary. Right. Um, that it was still kind of this vital interior culture that I think that they were going to preserve through the war. And that's another, I mean, that's, that might be a further complication, but I think that maybe there's a part of Gertrude that felt that she was doing what she had to do in order to protect the art mm-hmm. that she had worked so hard to cultivate right. and the artist because if those paintings hadn't have been in her possession right and if they wouldn't have had as you know she as Gertrude Stein if they wouldn't have had Gertrude Stein protecting them they wouldn't have been protected right so yeah it's choosing the materiality over the humanity mm-hmm. and I think it's part of her the mystique around her and why we're always going to be fascinated <laughs> with this human being so in response to this, um, you actually have this aria, um, Jury of My Canvas. Yes. Remember the, remember the metal placed around my neck. Um, she had been 
both Gertrude and Alice were awarded, awarded. great citizens of valor or something from during the First World mm-hmm. War by the, by the French government. And this moment, um, I think, is it's interesting because it's, it's what we could maybe imagine Gertrude saying. It's obviously what um, the librettist imagines Gertrude saying as her own defense. Mm-hmm. I did my time. I, I, I did my service before. Right. I'm of a certain age, a certain place in life now where I, I, I can no longer do what I once could do. still a puzzle you know there isn't an answer and I don't think she even has an answer Mm. for it Mm -hmm. and in all of her writings in this time they talk about there's just a very it's what she doesn't say there's a lot that she doesn't comment on at all yes that's the biggest thing um and is it a signifier of shame like did she feel guilt about it and just choose to brush it away and not deal with it or was it something in her internal life that she grappled with every day and because everything else was so presentational and she was so open, she opened her home. It's, it's, what, it's the absence of comment that I think is so stark. And it's like all best Gertrude Stein stories. They don't have an ending. Yeah. And it remains kind of an enigma. It's, you know, I think that going back to that, you know, where does the artist end and the art begin? Mm-hmm. Her life... Her work, they all kind of have this ellipsis yep. at the end, which is both wonderfully poetic and also like frustratingly elusive. Yes, it's because interior. we want to know these answers about her because it would make it, I think, so much easier to reject the art mm-hmm. if we were able to reject the artist. Mm. <laughs> like if we could really chalk it up to, we unequivocally know that. Gertrude was totally complacent, a collaborator in the fullest degree. Right. And just totally narcissistic. And, you know, it would be so much easier to say enough with, you know, a rose is a rose is a rose. We don't need that. But then you have that other side of her that is what could have been lost, what Mm -hmm. would have been lost if this Gertrude Stein name wasn't attached to it. This final duet between Alice and Gertrude, the whole death of Gertrude, it was it was almost very quiet. She died an actual very personal and intimate end of her life. Mm-hmm. There wasn't the media around. There wasn't any right. significant reporting on her. You know, it was accompanied by a, a very plain obituary. It was in French and English. Mm-hmm. And other than that, she passed away from stomach cancer and the complications thereof. Um, and she died at home, mm-hmm. and she died with Alice. And this final scene is beautiful in that it again reminds us 
of the intimacy between these two individuals and the the love mm-hmm. um, between the two of them. And it comes back to the duet from the first act um, where we're kind of introduced to something of their personal life. And I love the text, before we say hello, hello. And then it ends, before we say goodbye, goodbye. Um, Almost as if, like, you know, they kind of, they came into each other's lives, Mm -hmm. kind of automatically seen in each other themselves. The obsession for Corduroy. (laughs) Um, Right, two souls that recognize something in another. Perfect. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they kind of depart from each other, just yeah. in in harmony. The opera finishes with Pablo Picasso coming back in mm-hmm. to the salon. He and Gertrude Stein had kind of infamously had a falling apart a couple of years earlier, but he came back into the picture, so to speak, to help. Ah, <laughs> um, <laughs> see what you did help, there. To help Alice put <laughs> put the art of of Gertrude's into order and to help sell it off and Mm -hmm. to be given away. And so they have this kind of wonderful reminiscence of Gertrude as a person. There's again the reference throughout to Alice knitting and purling Mm -hmm. their lives together. And then Gertrude ends with this beautiful aria, kind of after-death aria. (laughs) I have been called many things. The man of letters, l'homme de lettres, Mm -hmm. Pardon my French. The dictator of art, a fascist, lovely, I've been called many things. I've painted with my words. Mm wind up with this character at the end. Who is Gertrude with this last number and at the end of this opera? This part, like, this is the part of her that I want to take away a piece of for myself. Like, I've been called many things. I've been judged by everybody. But... And yet always had the love of Alice. Always been called lovely. Yep. And she ends with that. And that's, and it's like, that's all that mattered. Ultimately, I think. I mean, yes, the glory, the genius, the the need to to be called a genius, to leave her mark. And none of that would have been possible, I don't think, without Alice. She needed the, the support and the praise and the encouragement. 
and that's what I, I do really love uh, and admire about Gertrude is that she, she just perseveres. She just keeps going, whether it's her diluted <laughs> or or not. That's something that's really admirable to me about her, and that's kind of where I'll begin. I'm not gonna just, <laughs> you know, stew in my my rage over you know maybe what she did or didn't do or could have done better because quite frankly I don't know I I can't know if she did or not if she did contemplate her life in that way it certainly doesn't seem like she did but yeah that's something I'll I'll continue to explore what a beautiful way to end Mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining me Brianna thank you for having me Austin Thanks to Jake Neer and our friends at WDET. We look forward to seeing you at the performance of Ricky Ian Gordon's opera 27. Pick up again with us on the lives of Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas living at 27 Rue de Fleurus, March 10th and 11th at the Macomb Center for the Performing Arts. For Michigan Opera Theatre, I'm Austin Stewart. Thank you for joining us for this Opera Here podcast. Mm-hmm.